Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 10th, 2018. This is episode 2269 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Well, it is for you. It's Thursday for me. We've got the 10-year anniversary party coming up on Saturday. So I am uh, doubling down on Thursday, and so I'm actually recording this one for you on Thursday, which means you probably got this one pretty early on a Friday, didn't you? I'm going to try to maybe not do them on a Thursday, but get all the legwork done on a Thursday from now on. If my piker's out there and get enough content to me anyway, then uh, maybe I can get these to you early on a Friday and get to some other projects early on a Friday myself. Anyway, what do we got from the expert council today? Got a good lineup for you. I have all about lectins and their effect on health with Gary Collins. And if you're going, really, Jack, are you really going to play Gary Collins talking about lectins today? Because you said you were going to do it last week, and then you did. Yeah, I know. I screwed up. It happens. Jack messes up. Uh, this was supposed to be on last week's show. I don't know how the segment got bumped, but it did. Uh, obviously my fault. I just don't know how I did it or how it happened, or why I did it, but I did. So we'll lead off with that today, with Gary talking about lectins and their effect on health. The ins and outs of grazing cattle, chickens, and turkeys in rotational systems with Darby Simpson. Uh, all about dealing with fatty tumors on dogs and cats from Dr. Kelly Dees Atkinson. Who? Dr. Kelly Dees Atkinson. Dr. Kelly is our newest expert council member. I remember I said I was looking for somebody uh, that was a veterinary medicine doctor, and uh, she reached out to me and gave me her credentials, and we talked, and I threw her an initial question to see how she would do, and I really like what she did. So we can welcome Dr. Kelly today uh, to the show, and we'll be learning about fatty tumors, which are also known as lipomas, which we've heard about with humans uh, recently from Doc Bones. But this is a problem that most dog owners deal with. Most dogs get some sort of lipomas in their life, and uh, we have to figure out, like, what do we do? How do we prevent it? Uh, how do we deal with it when it does happen? Do we remove them? Do we leave them alone? All that good stuff Dr. Kelly will talk to us about. Uh, when is the when is the default WordPress press theme a good idea? You hear Nicole Sauce is always like, you need to go get a custom theme. Well, today you're going to hear when it really makes sense to just use the default WordPress theme. Uh, next up, the current state of the stock market and timing investments for the mobile podcast from John Pugliano himself. John is doing some retro, man. Like We're celebrating 10 years of TSP, and John's going back to the beginning because he's on his way uh, to my place. He should be here sometime between 6 and 8 p.m. today, and uh, he's somewhere in the wilds of West Texas and, and, and got this one into us this week. And then I had somebody ask me a question on silver. And it really wasn't even for this show. It was just, what are your thoughts on investing in silver uh, as a response to one of my automated emails that go out? And uh, I was like, you know, I haven't really, other than sponsor segments, I haven't really talked about silver in a while. So I'll give you, you know, a good 10-minute segment on, on what I'm going to call the how, the why, the what, and the when when it comes to investing in silver. So we'll have all of that and more for you in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at this day in history, today being August the 10th for you anyway. We're going to go back, way, way back, and actually not that far back. We're going to go back 34 years. The year is 1984. 
the place, well, the place is all over the place, but the place it came from is Hollywood, California. A movie is released this day, one that most of this audience has probably seen more than one time. And the original one, not the crappy remake where everyone had gel in their hair. Yeah, Red Dawn was released on this day in 1984, 34 years ago. You feel old yet, those of you that saw it when you were little kids and went outside and played Red Dawn with your friends and they didn't call the police on you because they didn't think you were training for you know, that? Remember? Remember how it used to be in the 80s? You used to play guns when you were kids and even the girls played and, you know, what have you. Yeah, you know, the toy guns ran around shooting. So, yeah, uh, but Red Dawn, the, the thing that was the big deal about Red Dawn and why it made this day in history on the History Channel's history segment is it was the first movie ever released that was PG-13, somewhere between rated R and PG. On this day in 1984, the action thriller Red Dawn starring Patrick Swayze. Oh, come on, man. You left everybody else out? That was an all-star cast. Starring Patrick Swayze opens in theaters as the first movie to be released with a PG-13 rating. The Motion Picture Association of America, which oversees the movie rating system, had announced the new PG-13 category in July of that same year. Founded in 1922 as a trade group for the American film industry, the MPAA introduced its first ever movie rating system in 1968. The system came in response to groups who wanted better guidelines for parents to determine whether or not a movie's content and themes were child-appropriate. The initial ratings categories were G, appropriate for all audiences of all ages, M, for mature audiences but with all ages admitted, R, anyone under 16 not admitted without being accompanied by adult, X, no one under 17 admitted. The M category was eventually changed to PG, parental guidance suggested. And on July 1st, 1984, the PG-13 category was added to indicate film content with a higher level of intensity than PG, according to the MPAA. Starting in 1990, the X rating was changed to NC-17, anyone 17 and under not admitted, because it was believed that the X had come to connotate hardcore pornography. It kind of did. The MPAA rating uh, board reportedly issued the first PG-13 rating to The Flamingo Kid, which starred Matt Dillon. However, Red Dawn opened in theaters first. Red Dawn told the story of a group of teenagers who band together to protect their small Colorado town after it is invaded by communist paratroopers from Russia and Cuba. Along with Patrick Swayze, the film co-starred C. Thomas Howe, Leah Thompson, Charlie Sheen, Jennifer Grey, and Harry Dean Stanton. Okay, good. They, they gave, you know, gave those guys their due, huh? Uh, Red Dawn was one of Swayze's early films along with The Outsiders in 1983. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there because now we, we don't care. We, we care about Red Dawn, 1984, The Stay in History. And, the, the, you know, the, the Emotion Picture Association of America's rating system is a perfect example of not every problem needs to be solved by the state. It's a legitimate thing that you would say as a parent, I would like to know whether or not this movie is appropriate for my child. And since the movies are in theaters and you have to pay to go see it, it's not reasonable that every movie that your kid wants to see, you want to see. So you going to watch it first... You get it? Like it? I know some people think, well, you should be able to. No, not really. Like I, you know, don't you remember being kids and they gave you a few bucks and sent you off to the matinee? You know. So by having this rating system, it's not about telling filmmakers what to do. It's about saying after you've done it, this way parents can like know if I send my kid to a PG movie, this is kind of the the, the upper limit of what will be in it, and then if they go to a PG thirteen, this is the upper level of what will be, and I get to decide whether or not they go. 
I think it's a fine solution, and it's 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 again, it's a great example to say private organization paid for everything that's done with it's paid for private money out of a private industry that doesn't need the government to be involved, and it works just fine. So the next time somebody says, "Well, how would we without government?" say, you know, how would we rate movies? Without government. How would we be able to know if it's PG or PG-13 or R without government, right? And you might actually find some people who go, well, that's another example. And then you can explain to them, no. No, we're able to do that without the government. So maybe private ratings, private certifications, etc. are not only as good as, but in many situations better than government. Because there is recourse if it doesn't work. You don't have to go vote and pretend that you're doing something when your vote doesn't matter People vote with their dollars and their feet. They get the attention of industry. It's a lot easier to uh, to make a point with industry than it is with the state. Just a thought. This day in history, August 10th, 1984, Red Dawn. Don't tell me you didn't see it like 20 times when you were a kid if you're my age or older. Because I know you're lying. I know you. I know you did because we all did. Especially if you're a boy. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the Expert Council Q&A show. Uh, now, as promised... Gary Collins discussing lectins and their impact on health. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, primal health, nutrition, living off the grid, and all that kind of good stuff. But today, discuss lectins from Keith, and he's been on the paleo diet for a while, for several years. And yes, actually, lectins are important. And if you follow some of the things I talk about and some of the more traditional people in the paleo world, lectins are discussed. So yes, lectins are basically proteins that are found primarily in grains. And that's why grains are a no-go in paleo. So remember the no-gos in paleo are beans, legumes, grains, and dairy. On the primal side, you know, we'll say if you can tolerate grains, if you can tolerate dairy, it's okay. If occasionally in your beans, it depends. But usually you want to use them at, every once in a while and usually people flare up. I do. I try and avoid all those the typical paleo aggravators. With lectins, it's very simple. Like I said, they're a protein found primarily in grains. It causes inflammation of your digestive system, primarily your digestive tract. What that causes is kind of uh, perforations in your small and large intestine, primarily in your large intestine colon area. And those proteins will seep into your bloodstream, causing chronic inflammation, which we know many Americans suffer from today. There is some other research that possibly glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, can be also contributing, if not primarily contributing, but it's kind of a controversial topic area right now, that the grains with this uh, active ingredient in Roundup are causing even more perforation of the bowel and inflammation in the bowel and all this and get in the bloodstream. So you could be having two things going on at the same time. Uh, that's why, again, we avoid grains. So it's just a simple answer. And Keith asked if he should be paying attention because of the book, uh, Oh gosh, the plant paradox, which I have not read, but I'm familiar with it. And all, honestly, the plant paradox is basically paleo. I mean, all the things he discusses, I, like I said, I'm familiar with the material in the book. I don't own it, but I've looked at it and I, I got enough health books. 
but it, he basically is teaching a paleo diet with a different name. Nothing wrong with that. It's his twist on it. And so everything he explains in there and what he's talking about is in the paleo world. So Keith, you're on track. You should have been paying attention to lectins to begin with. But if you're following the paleo diet and avoiding grains and not ingesting grains, you're pretty much there anyway. I hope that helps, guys. And remember, I'm an MSB member. I believe it's under Primal Power Method or The Simple Life. You get 10% off in free shipping. And if you want, you can also sign up for my newsletter. You get 10% off your first order there if you're not an MSB member. And if you want to follow and get all my updates on my off-the-grid house and RV living and advice and all that kind of good stuff, that's where you're going to get it. Thanks again. Um. And I'll probably say it wrong when I get to it as far as how to pronounce it, but what I wanted to add is Gary was hitting really heavily on the grains. He did mention legumes, but legumes also tend to have uh, a lot of lectins as well. In certain uh, legumes, black beans, kidney beans, and uh, several others are high in a specifically dangerous lectin that that really can cause people a lot of problems and make them sick. Um, and it is, again, I'll probably say it wrong, but phytohegemogluten, I believe is the way you say it, phytohegemogluten, uh, and it's found in, again, raw beans like kidney beans. And it binds to a carbohydrate present on human intestinal cells. And it can cause a lot of problems and that's why if you've heard if you've heard people eat like you know raw black beans out of the garden they get sick this is why um but it's inactivated by cooking so that's why you might be like man i eat red kidney beans all the time some of you and like it doesn't hurt me none well that's because again if you cook these beans the the, the this uh phytohegemogluten uh breaks down and no longer actually exists in that state and then it doesn't bind up um, with carbohydrates that are present in your intestinal walls. And so that that is something else I just kind of wanted to add in there because sometimes when people bring up lectins, that's you know more of where they're coming from with how do I mitigate their effects. And there are other ways to mitigate the effects of lectins without just completely avoiding beans and grains. Though to me, that is probably the better way. However, you know what? Every once in a while, so daggone rice and beans is good. I, I was with my buddy David uh, last weekend. We stopped uh, at Razoo's, and I freaking ate red beans and rice. And I'm not going to apologize for it. I didn't eat it all, but it was it was nice to have some once in a while. So I think that we can take the, uh, the diet and nutrition stuff a little too far. I think we try to need to eat the right way. You know, 95% of the time, and then we can truly have things, you know, in, in quantity. And uh, so those are just some, some additional thoughts on that. Next up, uh, after finally delivering on the Gary Collins promise, uh, I have for you Darby Simpson on uh, the outcomes uh, of, of rotational grazing, the rules of thirds, and a bunch of other stuff. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of the Simpson Family Farm and Grass-Fed Life podcast. This week, I've got a question from Adrian in eastern Ontario. And his question is, are the standard grazing outcomes with cattle about a rule of thirds, meaning one-third eaten, one-third trampled, and one-third left standing, 
the same with other livestock. So uh, he says he just started a pasture poultry operation, and last year in the spring he was allowing grazing up to 100% eaten and trampled because of the amount of so-called weeds in his field, uh, plus the need for added fertility. Uh, the parts he grazed last year now have doubled and in some cases tripled the biomass uh, in areas that are as yet ungrazed. And he's about to put turkeys out onto the high biomass area, uh, but he has a, a lowered target impact. So his question is, should I target one-third, 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 or should I aim for higher impact still and gradually lower over time? Uh, he's also sent me a picture just to kind of give me an idea of what he's working with here. And, uh, Adrian, really, this boils down to what is it you're, you're trying to accomplish on your pasture. I'll, I'll go back to your, your, what you, uh, say is a standard grazing, uh, rule of thumb with cattle being one third, one third, one third. I personally don't use that. Um, now maybe I would if I were just, you know, really trying to, uh, accomplish some specific goals, but my rule of thumb that I currently use is something that Greg Judy taught me years ago, and that's uh, about a 60-30-10. So we are trying to graze roughly 60% with my cows because I'm trying to make money with my cows, uh, and my pastures are in pretty good shape. Um, and then I'm trying to trample about a third so I can put down plenty of carbon to uh, build the organic matter, build the soil. And then I'm, I'm wanting to see about a, a tenth, 10% roughly left standing to form a seed head so that when the cows come back through, they, you know, knock those uh, seed heads off and that becomes my, my seed bank and my, my now 30% uh, biomass carbon mat that's, that's down uh, to, to replant the pasture as, as we go. Now, if an area gets away from me, and it gets really thick and thatchy and brown and dead and stiff and stimmy, and that happens to me. Um, I'm going to try and trample a whole lot more. The, the cows are not going to be really crazy about trying to eat a lot of that because it's it's not ice cream at that point. It's more like broccoli, um, and, and they don't always like to eat their broccoli, and sometimes you have to make them. Um, so in that scenario, I'm going to be trying to trample a whole lot more to break all that stuff up. Um, and if it's already to that point, God knows I've got plenty of seeds on, on those grass plants. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to try and trample a whole lot more so I can get that under control so that when I come back around to it in, you know, 40, 50 days, I'm going to have a nice, lush, green, highly vegetative, delicious, uh, snack bar for the cows to, to eat and get, get fat on. So, um, I, I think, uh, a term that's kind of come about recently is adaptive grazing, and I guess that's if I'm going to try and paint myself in, that's probably what I would say I kind of do. I, I adapt <laughs> to the the daily conditions. Um, I'm doing rotational grazing. Um, my densities probably aren't as high as a lot of other people's densities, uh, but you know we're 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 building soil. We've got some pretty nice looking pasture. We've been able to increase our stocking density on pasture. Uh, we've actually taken old row crop field and, uh, over the course of about three or four years of grazing, we've doubled the, the carrying capacity, uh, in terms of live weight per acre, um, with cattle. So anyhow, to, as far as your, your poultry operation is concerned, now you mentioned turkeys. I'm going to back up a little bit and, and mention chickens. And most of us in, in, in poultry that are doing chickens, we're, we're using a Cornish cross. And 
those chickens don't graze a whole lot. They'll, they will graze some. Uh, and I, I know I've, I've, you know, heard of guys who they just restrict feed and they, they force the chickens to graze more and, and they, they will, they will graze more. Um, but they're not going to graze a whole lot. I think with particularly a Cornish cross chicken, if you're getting them to graze 20% of an area, uh, and they trample the other 80%, you're doing pretty good. Now with turkeys, turkeys are pretty amazing. They, they will, um, if they're like when we run those in our, our, our chicken tractors our poultry tractors in the fall, um, we, when we move those tractors, it looks like somebody's taking uh, a, a, an edger around the inside of the chicken tractor and just buzzed everything off. I mean, they will absolutely annihilate the grass. So I think with your turkeys, you will have to manage them a bit more. Um, and again, it really just kind of depends on what your goals are. With turkeys, I mean, any poultry operation, you're trying to make money. You know, you're trying to raise these for Thanksgiving to get them done, to get them fat. Uh, without overgrazing, I'd say let them graze quite a bit. I'm not so worried about the trampling. I I, I think uh, you know uh, chickens are going to mat everything down. They're just going to plop down and sit there and uh, just kind of poop and eat, um, you know, out of the, uh, the 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 grain that you give them. Uh, but turkeys are really going to graze pretty hard, so I think you got to be a little bit more careful. You definitely got to manage them um, uh, way different than than a chicken when it comes to grazing. Uh, but again, the goal there is, is to make money. So I say, let them graze, but not destroy something. Uh, I think personally, the cows are what we use to manage the pasture. So when I'm grazing pasture in front of my chickens, I let the cows clip it a little bit closer to the ground because the chickens don't like tall, thick grass. They can actually suffocate in the summer heat. They can struggle. They get too hot. They don't eat. They don't eat. They don't grow. They don't grow. Derby doesn't get paid. Derby doesn't get paid. Farming's not any fun. So I'll graze out in front of the chickens, you know, uh, seven to, to 14 days worth of moves, which is only a paddock or two with the cows. You're talking one or two days of grazing. I might let them graze that a little bit tighter just to knock that grass down. So, again, it really just depends what it is you're trying to accomplish at the moment with what animal and you have to adapt to the conditions uh, to meet your goals without, hopefully, without doing harm uh, to your pasture. So I guess those are my thoughts, Adriana. Hopefully you find that that helpful. Um, uh, but with your turkeys, I, hey, let them get fat and worry about you know biomass and you know targeted impact with your, with your cows later. And uh, uh, based on based on the uh, the photo you sent me of your pasture. Uh, you, you definitely, you've got, you've got some room for improvement to get some more biomass down with your cows to help get that pasture better established. But I think in time, what you're going to want to do is start grazing more. You're, you're going to want to start grazing 50% and then 60% and, uh, just trying to keep laying down about 30% to keep that, that soil carbon in the right direction and, uh, let your seed bank start to flourish uh, w within that. And I think after a couple of years, probably two years rehabilitating this area, that's where you're going to be at based on what I can see. Anyway, thanks for sending in the question, Adrian. If you got additional uh, questions on this, feel free to shoot me an email at darby at grassfedlife.co. For the rest of you, if you find this stuff interesting, go out to the grassfedlife.co website. We've got over 100 hours of podcasts out there on everything to do with cattle, chickens, turkeys, pigs, marketing, 
finance, cash flow, you name it, we cover it all. Grassfed Life Podcast. As always, thanks for the questions. Keep sending them in. Happy to answer them. Happy to help you guys out. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. All right, good stuff from uh, Darby. Next up, I have Dr. Kelly Dees Atkinson, our latest expert council member, to talk to us about dogs and fatty tumors, also known as lipomas. Uh, Dr. Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all of your furry veterinary questions. And today's is from David in Dallas. His question is, what causes random fat lumps in older dogs and how concerned should owners be about it? What treatments are available and what can be done to prevent or minimize them? Also, when should they be removed versus when is leaving them alone a better choice? First off, what are these little fatty lumps? Owners often notice these soft, movable masses that they find under the skin when petting their dog at home, although some are found on physical exam at the vet's office. Technically, these little masses are called lipomas, which are benign tumors of fat cells, and they're a common occurrence, especially in older dogs. Some reports say as many as 16% of dogs and 12% of cats may have them. And this number is really, is probably even higher since these were just the reported masses. Since these are benign masses, they fortunately do not spread to other locations in the body or metastasize. But that won't stop some dogs from developing lots of them over their lifetime. But these are just individual masses that pop up. They're not necessarily related to each other. So why do dogs get them? Unfortunately, we don't really know. We do know that they're more common in middle-aged to older dogs, and while any breed can have them, they do seem to be more common in certain breeds, such as Labradors and Weimaraners. Chubby dogs also seem to have more of them, and they may occur more frequently in female dogs. But like I said, any dog can have this happen. As an owner, how concerned should you be about these? The first step with any mass really, is to get a good diagnosis and confirm, is this actually a lipoma? Your veterinarian can perform a fine needle aspirate on any masses you find. This involves using a needle and syringe to stick the mass and pull out some cells to look at on the microscope on a slide. While most masses that are soft and movable may not pose a problem, occasionally a more dangerous tumor will look and act like a lipoma. And the only way to distinguish the difference is to look for these other tumor cells under the microscope. While aspirating any mass is a good idea, it is especially important for masses that are changing size or shape quickly. Most lipomas are slow growing, so a mass that rapidly increases in size or goes up and down in size is cause for concern. This is also true of masses that are painful since most lipomas are a non-painful condition. If it's determined that the mass is just a lipoma, there is usually not an immediate concern. They usually do not bother the dog and they aren't an emergency situation. That being said, the only way to get rid of them is surgical removal. There are some reports of vets that have tried liposuction type techniques on these guys, but it has a much higher complication rate and they can refill, so it's really not a good way to go. The question of when to perform surgical removal is one that, like much of medicine, is a gray area, and it really depends. 
It depends on the individual patient and owner. Lipomas, while generally a non-issue for the dog, can occasionally cause problems. They can grow quite large, even occasionally outgrowing their blood supply, which can lead to dying necrotic tissue and infection. They can also start to cause problems with walking and movement, depending on their location. Occasionally, the hair and skin around a mass will thin to the point that it is easier for the lipoma to get ulcerated and get an infection or just be bleeding on your carpet or couch. This is especially true for masses on the underside of a dog where they may rub it when laying down on the concrete or tile. And that's a lot of dogs. It's hot in Texas. They want to be cool. They lay on the concrete. And unfortunately, that is just going to be more abrasive and rub those spots. The decision of if and when to remove the mass is one to discuss with your vet about your specific pet and situation. But things I tend to keep in mind are one, it's easier to remove a mass that is smaller. It requires less surgical time, which costs less money. And the surgical site is smaller, so healing is faster and potentially less invasive for the patient. Masses near joints or high motion areas are definitely easier to remove when smaller. The motion in these areas makes wound healing more challenging, and there just isn't as much skin to work with when you remove them. All of this can increase surgical complications and increase expense if a mass that could have been quickly removed three years ago now requires fancy skin flaps at the surgery center. Another scenario to consider is the eight-year-old dog with a small to moderately sized lipoma that isn't causing a problem, but that guy is often a much better candidate for removal than the 13 to 15-year-old dog who may now have multiple medical issues making anesthesia more complicated, but who now has a mass that is ulcerated and causing problems. The moral of that story is that just because your dog is fine with it now, it might not be in several years, so you really have to balance out those risks and rewards for the individual animal. Masses that change in some way, such as size or shape, that makes us suspect that the lipoma diagnosis might be wrong are also ones that I tend to move up on the let's remove it list. When you get cells on the fine needle aspirate, you are limited to the cells in the area where you stick a tiny needle. So if a mass has a fat coating around it, then the diagnosis could be wrong. If in doubt, it's often best to remove the mass and send it to the pathologist for confirmation. I also consider if the patient is already going under anesthesia for other procedures, such as a dental examination and cleaning. If they are already under and doing well with the anesthesia, it can be a good time to take care of any masses like this that we might be monitoring, and it allows us to avoid multiple anesthetic procedures. Sometimes anesthetic risk or other medical issues may trump the risk of leaving the mass on a patient. It is possible that some of these masses may not grow or change that much and never be an issue for a dog. Unfortunately, the crystal ball doesn't always tell you which dogs and which masses will be the non-problematic ones. Your vet can help guide you on the best decision for your dog based on the multiple factors involved for that individual. I mean, for example, if you have a dog that spends a lot of time outside and there isn't a way to confine him after surgery, removing a mass and then having him hanging out outside where the mass could in the surgery site could get much dirtier might actually put the dog at more risk than just having left the mass altogether. So there's a really a lot of individual factors that come into play with these. And it's difficult to give you a specific way to avoid lipomas since we don't know what causes them to begin with. But keeping your dog lean and at a good body condition score may help. 
It's good to avoid obesity in our pets for many reasons, and it just might reduce the number of fatty bumps too. If you'd like to find out more about me, you can check out champagneandmudboots.com. And if you have questions about your pets or veterinary medicine, please send them to jack at the survivalpodcast.net and he'll send them on over. Thanks, Jack, and all you listeners. Have a great week. Bye. First, I'd just like to say that I think we're, we're really lucky to have Dr. Kelly with us, and I think she's going to do a great job. And, um, you know, this is a good, good opportunity now for you guys to get in questions for her. Uh, it, there's been questions before on animal husbandry and stuff that, you know, either I've handled or Nick Ferguson has handled, and we've done the best we could. I've even kicked some to Doc Bones on occasion because, well, he's an MD. Um, but having a DVM on staff now is, is really great, and I think she did a fantastic job. And uh, remember, how you submit a, a question for a show like this for any of the expert council members, including Dr. Kelly, uh, send me an email. Jack at the Survival Podcast with TSPC expert in the subject line. Uh, tell me who the question is for. Then give me the question in a single sentence. You can do it. I promise you, you really can. You don't need 17 sentences to ask a question. Then hit the return key and then give me the details, and you'll be a lot more likely to get on the air. And the more important thing is, since the expert counsel show, I'm just going to send it to him, right? Unless it's something like, if it looks like it was... I don't know, written by somebody that's crazy or something, I might not. But usually I just send them. You're more likely to get them to respond. But not only are they more likely to respond, they're more likely to answer the question clearly for you because they'll have a clear understanding of what you're asking. So uh, please get the questions in for Dr. Kelly and the other expert council members. Remember, you can see all of our expert council members and the stuff that you uh, can ask them about on the About uh, section of the website. You can see Meet the Expert Council. And there's a link for that uh, in the notes for every expert council show, such as today's as well. Next up, I have a question on WordPress themes for Nicole Awesome Sauce. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Derek. Now, Derek asked me a question back in February, and I answered it. And now where he's at, it was about a website. And where he's at is he's set up his hosting, WordPress is installed, it's using the default theme, which is 2017, and he's wondering the following. How do I, can you help me find a WordPress premium template? I'm looking at Theme Forest, and there are a lot of options. None of them fit the bill exactly, and what I'm building is a website that chronicles someone's life. I'd like to have on the homepage the just different posts that I can put together and other people can put together from their different perspectives on this person. And then some static pages that have overall content and navigation to get from those things. And he's just, I guess most of the templates he's finding are too complicated. So Derek, good news. You probably with those requirements don't really need to go by a premium theme. I know you guys thought you'd never hear me say that, but 2017 is designed for a basic blog, and what you're building is a basic blog with some static pages. The good news is, because you're on WordPress, you're not limited to how many pages you can have, so adding a page is really easy, and all you need to do is go just navigate down into the dashboard, and then pages, and then add page, give it a title, put whatever content you want in there, Look at it, see how it looks, and you're done, right? Oh, wait, no, because then how do people get there, right? So there's another part 
of WordPress dashboard. So you go to the dashboard, navigate down to appearance menus and choose the menu for the top navigation. It may just have one menu in that theme. Sometimes there's a drop down with multiple menus and then it, it asks you on the left hand side, it says, what do you want to add to the menu? And you add either a page or a post or categories or a custom link. You can add any of that. Just once you've made the page, go add the page, save the menu, look at your homepage, see what happens. You should be good to go at that point. And then from there, all you're doing is styling the default theme. You'll want to replace the header image. You'll want to decide what you want in the sidebar. You can find that stuff in different places. So if you want to change the sidebar, you go into appearance widgets and it'll have the sidebar and you can expand it and see what things are, are displayed there and just start writing posts. You can specify if you want the full post on the, on the homepage in the settings area on the dashboard, or you can specify if you want just a snippet. It's pretty simple. And for a basic blog, I just, I don't see a reason to spend the, the, you know, 29 to 59, 69, $79 on a premium theme, unless you're looking to build it into something bigger, which if you start with this one and you're doing the blog posts on a regular basis, the good news is it's very easy to put a new theme over the top of that in the future. Does that make sense, Derek? Okay. So a, a few months ago, gosh, maybe a year ago now, I sent over a link to Jack for a downloadable WordPress manual free. It's free, free to TSP listeners. I'm going to send that link to Jack again because I think that might help you get started. I'm also going to send a link to him to put in the show notes for some basic WordPress tutorials, because where you are now is really, you've got everything up. You just have to learn how to configure a few things. And this is where like WordPress is awesome because it's expandable, it's flexible, but it's also not awesome because it's expandable and flexible. And that means to the new user, sometimes the dashboard is confusing and it can look intimidating. But once you learn a few basics, you'll be fine. And I think you've already got what you need. If you have any other questions, Eric, let me know. TSP, get ready for a smashing weekend. And Jack, thanks for everything you do. Make it a great week. And I do have the uh, resources Nicole mentioned in the show notes with links uh, today. Uh, the guide that Nicole wrote and the uh, video uh, channel with a lot of tutorials on WordPress that she recommends. I'll reinforce this. I think there are a lot of people that can just simply use uh, the the stock theme and even these you know these these custom themes and all. Sometimes they're really worth buying, but in the end, most of them are just basically some coder coded up based on one of the WordPress based default themes. And I think one of the struggles people have with choosing a custom theme is you're buying a wrap. You still have to make it do all the stuff and add things in. And you'll see the thing demoed, and it'll be like, that looks really cool. And then you get the custom theme, and it doesn't do it. So, I mean, always budget, you know, unless you're the kind of person that knows how to do the stuff yourself. Always budget having someone do a little bit of work on it for you. You know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 bucks to 1000 bucks uh, is generally money well spent to have a good, solid image. However, however... Um, for the type of website that, that we're talking about here, 
you know, the default theme is fine. And, you know, you can change the header image. And, I mean, really, in the end, unless you're trying to make it do something specific or have some kind of special feel or layout that's not easy to do on your own, a website is just a box that stuff goes in. And I think maybe the most important thing I would tell people is, If you want to do a blog or a vlog or something like that, and you just want a website that you want to start communicating with, tell stories with, building a list with, etc., just get the damn thing up. You can put a new theme on it anytime you want. Don't let it be a dadgone excuse for inaction. Well, I'm trying to find someone to do my header and my logo, and you could have been blogging your ass off now, couldn't you? I mean, really, it, 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 it just... Get to work. You know, I just checked. I haven't read his blog forever, so I didn't know. But uh, Mark Cuban, the billionaire that owns Dallas Mavericks, um, he has a blog. It's blogmaverick.com. And uh, I used to read it way back in the day. I'm talking like 2005, 2006. He was using the stockest theme that there was back then. I mean, it wasn't even as good as the one that was on there. I mean, it was like he made it worse. But people read it because it was interesting and it, because it was Mark Cuban. And I'm not talking about pre-billionaire Mark Cuban. I'm talking about post-billionaire. I'm at $4 billion, and he used the stock theme. And now it's blog's all pretty. All that original content still back there from 2006, 2007, 2008, etc. Um, it's not like redesigning the whole site. WordPress is database-driven. So you can change the look and feel of a WordPress theme, uh, theme site anytime you want to. So get cracking with making content i'm telling you uh, next up i have a call in from the road with some background noise and some one spot where it fades out for just a second and all but i think it's kind of cool because john's going to start out talking about how we've been doing this for 10 years now and he's doing it the way i did it when i started and uh, the question he's answering is one's been coming in from a lot of folks lately like the way the stock markets goes it's a good time to pour a bunch of new money into the market john Tell us what your thoughts are. Well, hello, TSP listeners. Today I'm coming to you from my car. I'm actually driving in the state of Texas. I'm headed down to see Jack and Dorothy and to celebrate with them and all of you that are going to be attending the uh, 10-year anniversary party. Really excited to see everybody, and I'm so happy for Jack and Dorothy, uh, just the, the contributions they've made to this community and the overall milestone and podcasting history that Jack has made by putting together this community are just amazing. So congratulations to them. Look forward to seeing them here in a little bit. I did want to uh, get out a, a question, though. I, I've been hearing from a lot of people, uh, you know, now that the markets, the stock market have started to recover, uh, a lot of people are saying, hey, John, is this the time to get into the stock market? Should I be, you know, moving money from my 401k into the stock market? And I'm going to tell you my answer would be no. And one caveat, I'll get to that here in a minute. Uh, but what I want to, I guess, really use this as, as a teaching method to say that, you know, now is not the time to be buying in the stock market when we're back at record highs. As I record this right now, S&P 500's down a little bit, but it's really within, I don't know, about half a percent of making an all-time record high. That's not when you want to be buying in the stock market. It's also not necessarily when you want to be selling. Right now, I am fully invested. I am, you know, 100% of my retirement investment portfolio is in the stock market. It's well diversified. It's uh, it's in a variety of sectors. I think it's well, but it's all in 
Okay, I'm not calling for a, a crash. I'm not saying this is the time to get out of the market. Um, but, I'm, but I am saying it's not probably the time that you should be buying into the market. This is a time to hold. If you're already in, that's when you want to stay in. But you don't want to be putting new money into the market at this point because we are so close to a new record top. Now, I'm also not saying that I don't think the market's going to go higher. If I didn't think it was going to go higher, I would sell my positions and move out. But because of all the things that are going on with deregulation and the tax cuts and overall efficiencies that corporate America is having, their balance sheets are flush with cash. Corporate profits are way up. Most companies are using that money uh, to buy back corporate stock, just like they've done over the last 10 years, and it is continuing to raise this to raise the stock market. Now, will this at some point fall apart and we'll have a, a major recession and, and a pullback in the market? Well, absolutely, we will at some point, but I just don't you know see that happening in the next say six months or so. You know, the one big concern that I do have that's going to occur in the next few months is the midterm elections. I think that's the biggest wild card we have. But I also think that the guy that's in the White House right now uh, knows that his report card is the stock market. And so uh, he's not going to be irresponsible when it comes to uh, the November elections and having the market be down. 10 or 20 or 30 percent. I think to the extent that he can behave himself and help talk up the market, I mean, it would make rational sense that that's what he's going to do. So, yes, I do think that the midterm elections are an uncertainty. I think they're a wild card. I think they could inject uh, you know, volatility into the market. At the same time, I think you know history is, is on the side of the market at least being stable, if not being up between now in November. So that's one of the other reasons why I'm holding my positions. And I would also say and really reiterate what I've talked about before where I don't think we're in an overvalued market. That's also a misconception where I hear a lot of people saying, hey, these markets are at record highs and we're, we're too, uh, the, the price of stocks are too high. It's too overvalued. And while we are at record highs in terms of nominal prices, that's true. I don't believe we're at record valuations. In fact, I, I know we're nowhere near record valuations. The, the price is the, let me correct that, not the price, but the the price per earnings ratio is historically high, but as I've mentioned in, in previous segments on, on TSP, that is because interest rates are so low. Right now, if you're investing in a 10-year treasury, you're, you're just at about 3%. That is a 33 times a price per earnings ratio. You're paying 33 times for the privilege of owning a U.S. 10-year treasury. While at the same time, when you look at forward profits on the S&P 500, you're talking about a premium, a price per earnings ratio of maybe something in the area of 16 and a half, 17 times earnings. Again, that's a little bit higher than normal, but certainly it's not extreme. And remember, we don't want to be looking at at uh, backwards earnings. We don't really care what Apple or Google or Facebook paid 12 months ago. What we're interested in is what they're making in the future. 
stocks always discount future performance. The stock market is a forward-looking instrument. And so when we want to look at these prices, we're not so much caring about what current price-per-earnings ratios are. We're interested in what that future valuation is. And again, you know, we have to use the numbers that we have. Uh, in most cases, the numbers are reliable. We actually see corporations sandbagging and, and holding back on their projections. So at this point, I'm not worried about a failure of corporate profits. I'm not worried about going into a recession. I think everything in the U.S. is just fine, and that's why I'm holding my positions. But again, I would not be putting new money into the U.S. stock market, and that's where my caveat comes in. And this is not a recommendation. This is just simply my opinion, and I'm telling you that if you do want to put some money into the stock market, where you might consider looking would be in international markets and specifically in emerging markets. Emerging markets had held up pretty well earlier in the year. They did start to fall apart at the end of May, June. Uh, when I look at the numbers, though, I think that it, it looked to me like the international markets bottomed out sometime in July. That had to do with China's economy slowing down a little bit. Obviously, the fear over tariffs and um, you know a trade war threat is impacting China. The Chinese stock markets are down anywhere oh, from about 20, 25 percent. Uh, and while I do think that there are a lot of issues with the Chinese economy, and I think, again, someday it could be a major issue for the next three to six months. I just don't see the economy totally falling apart. And so I think it. these markets did bottom out around July. It also coincided with a lot of political instability uh, in specific countries that are considered emerging markets. Places like Turkey, uh, Malaysia had a surprise election. Uh, the, the Mexican election went to someone that has more of a a leftist socialist bin, and that worried some people. Even the market six turned around quite a bit, is improving. Uh, so in and, and Brazil too. Brazil has been another market that's um, had a lot of internal turbulence that has a, had a big impact on emerging markets. Uh, but you know, if you look at a country like India, uh, they're doing fantastic right now. And I think with where commodity prices are and where the overall strong U.S. demand is. That is a leading indicator to uh, have you at least consider looking at emerging markets. So what I would say is if you have some cash available in your 401k plan or uh, you know just general money in your brokerage accounts, I would not be putting in the U.S. at this time. I'd be holding those positions, but I would definitely look at emerging markets. I'd consider putting, oh, 25, 30% of my total portfolio into something like emerging markets. You don't want to bet the farm. You don't want to put everything in there, uh, but uh, there certainly is risk involved. But I would be willing to accept that risk of, you know, up to 30%. As far as funds, um, most of your 401k plans are going to have something from Fidelity or someone that talks about emerging markets. That's what you'd want to look at. If you have the ability to go into specific exchange-traded funds, then the big, uh, the big fund that everybody in Wall Street invests in is, is EEM. That's Echo Echo Mike. Uh, that's a very popular fund, very stable. I also 
uh, from a cost perspective uh, as far as low operating costs and in some cases free or nearly free to get into. I like Vanguard's Emerging Market Fund, which is VWO. That's Victor Whiskey Oscar. And then also Charles Schwab has a similar fund that is uh, S-C-H-E. That's Sierra Charlie Hotel Echo. So, hey, again, not making a recommendation. Uh, just telling you that if you do want to put some money to work, I think emerging markets uh, have a long way to go. Uh, I mentioned China's down 20 25% overall. Those emerging market indexes that I just mentioned, they're down, oh, probably 15 13 to 15% from their highs in January. I think... Obviously, they could re easily retrace that and get up about 15%. I would not be surprised if they even went up as high as 20 to 30% you know, over the next 6 to 12 months. And uh, particularly in the short term, I see the U.S. market as maybe having another 5% to move. I think the S&P 500 is very likely to get up around 3,000. But, you know, that's a 5% opportunity where when I look at emerging markets, I definitely think the possibility is there to go 15, 30%. And so that's where I would be putting my new money at this point. Hey, I always appreciate the questions that you guys send in to me. Jack, again, congratulations on 10 years of doing this podcast. Uh, buddy, look forward to seeing you guys here in just a little bit. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Now, I, I would actually like to add a little bit to this one before I, I go into my subject, which is in some ways related. Um, John is speaking from a standpoint of someone that's invested, not from someone that's like saying, I want to start, you know, contributing money. Or he's not really talking about like if you do a weekly contribution to your 401k. He's not really talking about that money. When we invest like that, it's you know, you call it dollar cost averaging. And so since his his signals are not bail out, bail out, bail out, then you're not letting all the money that's come in right now roll into, you know, your your US dollar fund or your your US bond fund or something like that. It's still going to the allocations that you have. What he's talking about is well, I've got this chunk of $50,000 sitting here. Should I go into the market with it right now? Uh, because the way he's looking at this, you either have that money because you found it or you have that money because you earned it. That's about the only two ways you can get money. right? You can find it and you can earn it. And find it is like somebody left it to you, you want a sweepstakes, uh, whatever it was. Um, and if it's in your investments, if it's put aside in the year, and he's talking about your investment money here, then the odds are the reason it's in cash right now is it's part of your cash reserves as a, as a standard practice, or you've had some good gains, and you've sold off those gains and moved that cash to the cash basket so that it's there and ready when there's a buying opportunity. So he's not really saying don't buy any stocks at all. He's saying don't go pouring a bunch of money in the market right now. If you have that money aside for a reason, it's probably, whatever reason it was when you put it there, the reason's probably bigger right now than it was when you put it there. And it's sooner or later, there'll be a correction to this. And I gotta tell you, I'm not gonna be too stingy with how, you know, too stingy toward the cash position right now. I'm pretty optimistic at the market right now 
with my finger on the trigger to bail the hell out at any moment is kind of the way to look at it. And here's why. We just had this incredible report on GDP of 4.1%. Now, look, I know how they fudge the numbers. I'm the one, that, some of you that are going to tell me about how they fudge the numbers. I'm the one that told you that. You just don't remember it. I'm the one that told you how they move things like pension payments into the GDP before they happen. So I understand. But it's still measured again. It's been, been done that way for years now. And it's, 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 it's what analysts base their decisions on, and everybody that's you know informed knows that's how that number comes up. The most important thing about that number, when we're looking forward into the market right now, is the inventories. How much stuff do companies have on hand? There's a big difference when you have a really great unemployment rate, a really great GDP rate, a really great market, and high inventories, and one when you have low inventories. If you have high inventories, everybody's sitting on a bunch of stuff, a bunch of money, etc., and that means that there is, the, the supply is flush, and we don't need a lot of productivity to meet the next quarter's needs. But if those inventories are low, that means that it's moved through the, the stuff that was produced went through the channel. It's done its thing. It's not sitting on a shelf somewhere. And it's, it's not that simple, but I want you to think about it that way. The stuff is off the shelf instead of on the shelf that counted to the, to the, to the numbers for the economy, which means we need new stuff to go on the shelves. Now, again, I am way, and I can't get into it, I am way oversimplifying this. These are cycles that run over a year, two, three years, okay? But right now we are at a low inventory point with a booming economy. The concept that we'll have a radical correction of the market or a radical drop of the market or even, you know, not having significant growth in the next quarter is, is really low at this point. Now, the problem is there's all kinds of crap, that could screw it up. There is the midterm elections. There is a significant chance that the Democrats are going to take the House back. They probably are going to, the Democrats will probably lose some seats in the Senate. They could take the House back. However it ends up, it's going to be a very thin majority in the House. That's going to make getting things done far more difficult than it's been. If the Democrats take a significant majority in the House, it brings up the whole question of will these nut jobs try to impeach the president, etc. Um, but it also brings up maybe more interference. Then, this whole Mueller thing, this investigation, I think it's a big nothing burger. But Trump is a wild card, and you never know what he might do. It's his entire legal counsel saying right now, you know, just shut your mouth, let us handle it, go out there and yell at people like you do all the time. If he agrees to sit down with Mueller against the advice of his uh, attorneys, which I don't think he will, but if he does, it's an if game, um, he's probably going to say something really stupid and get himself in trouble. If you end up with a president in true crisis, that's not good for the stock market. All of these tariffs that Trump is doing, I know a lot of people out there, you're free trade libertarians and all, I've been hearing from you, I can't believe you're not speaking out against these tariffs. I'm pretty neutral on anything the government does, because the government's going to do what it's going to do. It's outside of my concern, my influence, and my control. I just It's in the square root of F all sector. However... Trump's not implementing tariffs on countries that we're doing business with with fair trade. 
Trump's implementing tariffs on countries that have been raping us up the poop chute, okay, for, for 40, 50, 60 years of trade imbalance. They're the ones with the high tariffs. He's giving them a taste of their own medicine. I think it's going to work. This is not pro or anti-Trump. It's a strategy analysis. I think it will work. There's already some buckling that's begun to happen. What Trump's doing is waging a trade war on multiple fronts, which is difficult, but it's easier than doing a conventional war with, with military on multiple fronts. You really look at the players here. So you got China, you got Europe, EU, you got Canada, and you got Mexico. Now, technically, Canada and Mexico with NAFTA are like one front, but they're really not. They're two fronts. They're being handled differently. If one of them buckle, if one of them buckle, they'll go down like dominoes. It'll be the real domino theory. Because once one says we'll play ball and the U.S. goes and says, okay, we'll take your sanctions off and we're going to do this, and they're not going to give Trump what he wants and he knows they're not. He's like, hey, why don't we just get rid of all tariffs? And those of you that say you're free trade, that's what you should want. You can't bitch when the United States implements a 20% tariff on a country that's been tariffing our shit at 60% for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and, and, and say it's because you can start it with free trade. But if that doesn't work, if that really goes sideways for him, that can cause a whole shit ton of problems in the market. And the market is behaving and has been behaving for the last 10 years really in a, a bipolar schizophrenic way. It overreacts up and down. Over-enthusiasm and, and, and over-concern. So... Be careful and be aware and understand the context that John came from. And I'll talk to him because we're going to be uh, talking about a bunch of stuff here uh, tomorrow. And uh, if, if I got that wrong, I will update you on Monday and say, nope, John says don't put not a dime in there at all, but I don't think that's what he's saying at all. That brings me to my segment. A guy named Alex, um, who's a pretty recent subscriber to the email list uh, at the website, uh, sent me an email, pretty short one, and it just said, what are your thoughts on buying physical silver? I was wondering about buying more ASEs, which are American Silver Eagles, or trusted generic rounds, one being a small premium versus more bang for the buck thoughts. Here's how I feel about silver. And a lot of you listen for a long time, know kind of the first 30 seconds of this exactly what it's going to be. I believe that 5 to 10% of your net wealth should be in silver and gold. And when I say that, I mean physical silver and gold. If you see short-term opportunity upside or downside with silver or gold, and you want to use it in your investments or your 401k or your IRA, that's what ETFs are for. Because they're immediately liquid, they trade at a price, they sell at a price, you have that small brokerage fee, and you're done. So if, if you know... If silver jumps up to like 80 bucks and you realize that's just stupid and some kind of nonsense is going on, you want to short it, you do that with an ETF. If it drops to seven bucks and you think it's going to double in a week uh, and you want to be able to quick capitalize on that with some of that cash you have in reserve, use an ETF for that. The five to 10 percent I'm talking about, you can put your hands on it, you can hold it. And I do not believe in doing that with retirement vehicles like IRAs. That an IRA, whether it's Roth or conventional, is the most public form of wealth you can have. The only reason I see for using IRA, IRA money to buy silver 
is because you have a bunch of it and you want to put some silver up and that is a good source of funds for it. And then I can understand that. That's not really my point having silver. I want a piece of my wealth that is liquid, transferable, and anonymous. As soon as I put it in something like an IRA, that last one goes away and the other two make it become more encumbered and difficult. So, that's my position, is that 5% to 10% recommendation. Then I have to be really careful with this, because I've learned over the years I have to be really careful and not assume you know anything about what I'm saying and make sure I fully explain it. That 5% to 10% should be entered into over time using what we call dollar cost averaging. If you today looked at your retirement money and everything and said, well, my net wealth is $200,000, I should have $20,000 worth of silver, and, and you went out and just cashed some stuff in and just bought $20,000 worth of silver and locked in a safe in your floor and, and, and emailed me and say, I did what you said, I would be like, that is not what I said. That is not what I said at all. Because I don't know when silver is going to go up or down. And it's a real easy thing to invest in here and there a little bit at a time. And if you're doing that, by the time you have $200,000 in net wealth, having $20,000 worth of silver is a great idea. Or thereabouts. And, and, and probably more like 10. I'm really kind of big more toward the 5%. My personal position is about 5%. Um, I say 5 to 10 because I know some people want to be more aggressive in the position, and I'm kind of giving you that 10% as an upper limit. Now, the question here specifically, though, is ASEs, Silver Eagles, versus generic rounds. It is almost inconceivable that if you buy silver from a silver shop, a pawn shop, or an online retailer, not eBay, an online retailer, that you're going to get anything other than pure silver, just like they say. Um, there is some shit out there that is, is counterfeit. China makes it, and they make counterfeit everything, including eagles. You're not going to get them from a reputable dealer. So as far as the genuine nature of the silver, I do not make my decisions at all uh, based on uh, the eagles versus anything else. And the Canadian coins and everything else, there's other government-issued silver that I think is Good investable silver as well. All right. However, remember I said liquid? So it's not so much that you're paying a premium or getting more bang for the buck because the other side is what is your exit position. And probably the best thing to do is to look around at who's dealing right now around you and look at what anything is selling for and what it's being bought for. And you'll notice there's a pretty good spread there. It's bigger than most people I think think it would be. I think if I went in there and I bought 10 ounces of silver at 16 bucks today, and at the end of the day I decided I didn't really want to do this, so I go back in there to sell my, my 10 ounces at, at 16 bucks, I'd get 16 bucks, assuming the market didn't move during the day. And, and no, you, you, you'd probably get more like 14.50. What? Well, they have to make money, and they take risk because when they buy your silver today for sixteen fifty, let's say I don't even know what silver's at today, um, say sixteen bucks today, that silver might go down to fifteen dollars tomorrow. And if somebody comes in and wants to buy some and they have to sell it, that's that's the nature of that business. It's a tough business. So spot is just kind of a 
a point in the market that everybody's working off of. But dealers are going to make their own decisions about they sell above and below spot. So if you realize that you, you look at it that way, the difference in spot above and spot below on buy and sell is generally not that much different between Silver Rounds and American Silver Eagles. However, American Silver Eagles are, to do a stupid pun, the gold standard in silver, right? They are the, the, the best entity. For the people that do want to hold uh, silver in IRAs, they can do that and hold American Silver Eagles. They are considered U.S. legal tender at face value, so it's worth a dollar no matter what. I'm not really about, worried about silver going to under a dollar an ounce, though. Um, it, it really is personal preference. When I'm buying, I tend to buy Silver Eagles. When I'm accepting Silver and Barter, I take everything equally. But I tend to buy Eagles, and then I also tend to buy specific rounds because I'm investing for myself, but I'm also investing for future generations. So, for instance, when the Shipwreck Silver came out, I can't remember the name of the ship, but there was a ship that was sunk in World War II, And they got the silver back, and the Gasparilla, Gasparilla, something like that, they got the silver off of it. And they made these coins with the ship on it from the silver that was on the ship that laid on the bottom of the ocean for almost 100 years. Yeah, I bought some of those. I bought some of those because it made sense to put those into my, 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 net, my grandsons and my, my nieces and setters, granddaughters, silver uh, for the future, for them to have both the wealth and the story that went along with it. But my primary investment goes with Silver Eagles. So if I was making a decision to buy a loan, generic rounds or Eagles, Eagles. I'm only buying rounds when there's something about that particular one that I want for some sort of little bitty numismatic reason. Additionally, I do like what they call junk silver, U.S. silver coin. Um, and if you, if you want to, like, I don't, can't tell you exactly what my allocation is because some of you guys buy MSB and silver and stuff like that, so it goes in. It gets inventory as an ounce, you know. Um, but I would say probably 60% silver eagles, um, and this is the weight by weight, 60% silver eagles, uh, probably about 10% large, uh, you know, when I say large, over 5 ounces, pieces over 5 ounces, like 5 ounce bars or 5 ounce, 10 ounce rounds, things like that, about 10% by weight in, in that type of, a, of an instrument, um, probably about 10% in uh, silver rounds, uh, and then uh, about, I'm sorry, in, uh, 10% in, in U.S. government junk silver, pre-64 coinage, and then about 20% in rounds. It's, it's probably about that, and it's probably just worked out that way. But when it comes to buying, if I'm going to buy, if I'm going to go to a silver shop or I'm going to go to Jam Bullion, I'm going to put my weight in the buy behind it. If I was going to buy a 1000 bucks. For instance, right now, silver at JM Bullion. Let's do it that way. Let's say today I just decided I'm going to put a thousand bucks in the silver today because I don't know, a thousand dollars fell and hit me in the head. And I'm like, I'm going to put this in silver. If I went to JM Bullion today, what would I buy? And um, to, to do that right, I, I went on their site and played around with it and said, if I was going to spend a thousand bucks today, uh, would I be happy with this buy? And, and here's what I came up with um, 45. One ounce American Silver Eagles. So 45 Silver Eagles. And, you know, just to add some diversity, I, I picked one of their generic silver rounds, one ounce Silvertown Buffalo Silver Rounds. They look kind of cool. Pick up five of those. 
And then uh, right now they have a pretty good deal on 90% uh, face value, brilliant uncirculated uh, dimes, quarters, and halves, kind of a mix there. Uh, and they're selling for like 160 bucks or something like that. So all that together comes up to $1,081. So it's a little bit over my $1,000 target, but that's what I would do right now. But, I mean, the important thing to understand is the next day I might go, hey, you know, I want to add three or four different odd silver rounds and, and cut back on the Eagles. But I, I tend to, to go heavy there because they are kind of the easiest to sell. Uh, they, they're, you know, everybody will buy them. Uh, but I, again, you got to understand that that's, that's what that spot price is, is, you know, large contract, large amounts, uh, that dealers pay and dealers, the dealers pay when they buy, uh, and then when they, when they're going to sell to you, they have to sell for more than that. And, and you, I mean, you really have to understand that you're not going to get that price. You're going to get something a little bit underneath it, and you're going to pay a little bit more over it. There, there would be nothing wrong at all with just saying, for my silver investments, I'm buying silver eagles. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Not a dadgone thing. It, it's actually a very... There, there is really no reason to do anything other than that unless you want to. And my diversity in silver is because I want to. It's because I look at my silver and I think to myself... If I ever need money, it's there. But this is wealth that's going to go to my heirs. And it's going to go to my heirs anonymously. And no one needs to know about that. And it's an opportunity for me to leave them something more than just money. It's an opportunity for me to leave them stories. Uh, the fact that some of the coins there you know, are 100 years old today or more. And that one day, you know, maybe 50 years from now, um, assuming that his life goes well and, and, and he doesn't need, need it in the form of money, you know, he might, my, my, my grandson could be 57 years old and talking to his grandchild and explain that, that his grandfather put this, you know, 1894 uh, silver dollar away for him. Uh, that, that's pretty powerful. So I don't like to get emotion mixed up with investment. And I think it's very important that we keep those two worlds separated. However, my allocation into silver is Vulcan. It's, it's logical. It doesn't have a thing to do with emotion. There's a certain amount of money that gets put over in this bucket. This bucket is for investing in silver and or gold. Now, I can be as emotional as I want inside that bucket. Because it's going to be in silver anyway. doesn't matter what I buy with it. As long as I don't go out and buy, you know, ten thousand dollar quarter because it's, you know, in a, I don't do that. The whole, you know, it's 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 in a, a case and it was graded. You know, if you like that, that's fine. I'm not doing that. I, I I don't buy into that. I believe that that is a subjective value that can collapse at any time. I'm investing in the underlying metal. But you know, instead of buying a silver eagle today, I'm going to buy something with a really cool picture on because it makes me think of my grandson. That's an emotional decision to buy that other thing. But the silver investment is a silver investment. And in the end, it's all silver. It's all silver. It's all liquid. You can go down to a pawn shop and you can sell it. And a lot of people ask me why I'm so much bigger on silver than gold. <clears throat> There's a lot of people that are bigger on silver than gold because they think it's going to be a better barter tool when society collapses. I think if we do have any sort of collapse that it can be a barter tool, and that's great, and that goes in your back pocket, uh, 
I like silver because it's small amounts, and that's why it would be a better barter tool. But if I ever, for some reason, had to start relying on my silver, the last thing I need is tax consequences. And I know what I'm supposed to do, but I also know if I was in that situation what I would do, and that is I would go over to, to Joe Blow's coin shop, and I'd sell 500 bucks worth of silver. And I'd get my 500 bucks and go on my way, and there'd be no 1099 or nothing like that. You see what I'm saying? And there's a certain amount of silver eagles you can sell with no tax consequences as well, which is why it's a good idea to have those weight the majority of your investment. But see how that makes sense. So that it could be parted out to multiple locations in an emergency that's more likely like you went broke. You going broke is a lot more likely emergency to go through uh, than the United States economy collapsed to nothing and now we live in the James Wesley Rawls world of people shooting at each other. So that's why I like silver. So hopefully that answers your question. Uh, and I know it's not really like a dead solid answer, like just do this. But again, I, I believe in you make the logical, cold-hearted decision, X amount of dollars going to silver this month, and then you can do what you want inside of there. But, you know, stay 60% on Silver Eagles minimum, kind of just, just for your best practices going forward is my basic advice. But how do I put this, man? If I gave you, sometimes I give you advice, and I'm like, man, I can't believe you didn't listen to me. So that would be like the you know around five percent, and if you go put fifty percent into silver, I'm gonna be like I can't believe you didn't listen to me. But if you came to me and say Jack, I put five percent into silver, and uh, I went like eighty percent into rounds and only twenty percent into eagles because I hate the government. Said, okay, it's fine. I wouldn't I wouldn't get my panties in a wad over it at all. All right. With that, we have come to the end of another episode of the Survival Podcast, and uh, I want to remind you that. We are uh, celebrating 10 years of the show, even though it officially happened back in June. We're having our party this Saturday, and in conjunction with that, I do have a sale on the Members Support Brigade, also known as the MSB. It's 15 bucks off an annual membership at $50, so it's 35 bucks. That comes out to about 12 cents an episode to present uh, to support the show. And without that, there's no way I could be doing this. I, I, I wake up every day feeling blessed that this is what I get to do, but... MSB is how I get to do it. Uh, it's allowed me to only take a small handful of sponsors and not really charge them a lot of money. That way I'm not beholden to anybody. Uh, and yet I'm able to offer you a product that pays for itself. And at 35 bucks a year instead of 50 it, it, I, I don't even understand how you wouldn't get your, your money back. And there's some cool stuff in the MSB. If you haven't checked it out in a while, if you're an existing member, you might want to. One of the cool things you can check out is this thing called Fishing Yoyito. It's a little handheld fishing reel. There's no rod. Goes anywhere. Goes in your backpack. Great for you guys to spend a lot of time, you know, back in the woods. Uh, my buddy David, I gave him a couple when they sent me some for review. He took them with him. He goes fishing all the time when he's on the road. And he's like, I can't believe how good the thing worked. He said, I'm going to tell you flat out, I thought it was a scam until I used it. And he said, they work fantastic. And they do. And there's a lot of cool small companies that we've been able to help out and help you out. Gun Adapters is another example. Butcher Box, Ridge, Butcher Box, Ridge Wallet, Lenwood Leather, OMG Leather. These are all small companies, some a little bigger than others, but they're all small companies. And hey, I was talking about buying silvers the last segment. I would have got 10 bucks off that order today at uh, JM Bullion. I know that's not a huge uh, discount. But if you buy silver a couple times a year, five bucks here, ten bucks there, fifteen bucks there, it doesn't take long to hit thirty-five bucks and get your money back, and then help support the show. That's how I put that program together. Since we're celebrating ten years, the discount code is ten years, uh, so it's, it's one zero years or T E N years. Either one will work, 
And uh, if, you'd, if you'd like to become a member, if you've been on the fence about it, now would be a good time. Uh, I probably won't do another sale for quite a while. We did one for the bacon sale when I was going on vacation. Uh, maybe we'll do one around Christmas, but it's going to be a, a pretty good while before I do another sale, so you might want to take advantage of it while you can. All right, next up, let's take a look at our song of the day. Um, it is Billy Joel Week, and this is actually one of... Uh, One of my favorite Billy Joel songs, it, it, I don't know that it was a huge hit for him, though. Um, it's a deep, meaningful, amazing song. It's called The Down Easter Alexa. The Down Easter Alexa. What is a Down Easter? Well, there's a couple different things that are Down Easters, but in this case, we're talking about a boat. It's a, it's a style of boat, and if you can think of the classic fishing trawler, it, it's kind of like that. Very, very popular in New England, and that's where this song is, is placed. And it's, it's Joel lamenting um, on behalf of a fisherman. He's basically he's playing the character of a fisherman in this who is having a hard time feeding his family. And not so much with fish, but getting enough fish to pay for the boat and have money to feed the family. And this was written in the late 80s. And let me tell you, that was a tough time for fishermen in New England. The thing is, a lot of that tough time You know, they want, you always want to blame someone else. It was really something they did to themselves. They overfished those waters off the coast of, uh, of New England. Uh, a classic example is, and everybody thinks of nets and long lining, right? Swordfish. And I think swordfish is even mentioned in this. And that is a, you know, a, a, a definite fish that they go after uh, further out there. But there, there's a lot of these boats that were fishing relatively close in. And one of the fish species that was fished commercially heavily up into the 1980s was striped bass. And I was out fishing in 2002 uh, with a professional guide off the coast of Rhode Island, right where this song is set. And it was, it was a boat that was actually owned by a company called Ortronics. It was back when I was a vice president of sales for Fluke Networks. And uh, Ortronics had this boat to take clients out in, basically as a tax write-off, and so that the ownership could go fishing whenever they wanted. They had this captain and his first mate on, on, uh, on basically on salary. And I started talking to this captain, because I, I talk to people. That's what I do, right, And especially in sales. And I said, you know, how did you get your start here? He said, I've been, you know, captain in a boat here since I was a kid, and I used to be a commercial fisherman. And I've, I'm really grateful that I have this job now, because I don't have to worry about paying my bills. Kind of fits right in here, doesn't it? And I think this is like... 12, 13 years after the song is written, this conversation is happening. And uh, I said, well, what did you fish for? He said, well, we're catching a day, striped bass. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, we almost fished them to extinction. He said, you see how we're catching them. And we were fishing with this lead core line and in this current, and he anchored the boat, and he knew where the structure was, and we were just fishing with cut mackerel. And he'd say, you know, let the line out to the red. And there was different colors on the line, and it would tell you how many feet each time the color changed. So that line would take the bait. And once you got it down in there and you got a feel for it, uh, and I picked it up pretty quick, man, you get down there, you wait, boom, you're pulling a fish in, and you're pulling these big old striped bass in. We're pulling them in left and right. We had a limit, though. I think we could each keep one and one over a certain size of the boat. And then different times of the year, you might be able to keep more. And uh, so he's like, Well, you see how we're catching them. He goes, and he goes, you, you picked it up. And by, by now we had had our limit, and everybody was drinking inside the boat, and I was just back there fishing for fun and letting them go. He goes, now, how, 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 much, how many do you think you could pick up like that if you did this every day for a week or two? 
uh, and really got the feel for for you know hitting those fish and getting them in quick. Oh, I'm like, oh my god, tons of them. He goes, so imagine if there's there's a hundred of us out here just fishing with rod and reel doing this. How many fish were taken? And he said, that's what we used to do. That's what we used to do for these fish when they were running. That's what we used to do. And it was virtually unlimited what we could take if we were taking it by line. And that's what put us where we were. And by putting restrictions on, we've brought that population back. And so in many instances, we want to believe it's the giant fishing boats that put the little fishermen out of business. But a lot of little fishermen catching a lot of fish adds up to a ton of fish. And it is important that we set limits. And this is one of those places where I am at odds with government, but I think government can do the right thing. They just often don't. And setting limits to consumption... You know, that's that's a perfect example. And if fishermen truly had understood what they were doing, what happened is it gets to be competitive. Everybody's trying to get as many as they can while they can get it. It's very conceivable to me, just like we talked about with the rating systems in the movies, that we should have had fishermen societies and guildings that had, had you know paid independent biologists to set the limits so they knew what they could take. And that system would probably work a lot better than the government getting involved because the reason those restrictions worked isn't because the, the, the fishermen had to follow them. It's because they chose to. In some levels, it's voluntary law, law enforcement, law compliance. Because, trust me, when you're out on these ships, you know, you think like, you know, law enforcement come to get you or something. There's checks and balances, but there's nothing that really prevents people from cheating here and there. Except thinking about it and realizing, if I do it and everybody does it, we're going to be back where we were. So things are better, not perfect, but better for fishermen in New England. Conversely, I watch TV shows about other parts of the world where they have not put these restrictive limits in yet, and you know, fishermen can barely survive. And I think in many instances they don't know that they're doing it to themselves. And then there are the instances of the big trawlers with the nets and taking everything, and, and that's just no good either. Just some stuff to think about. This is an amazing song. Now, here's a... You're going to think I'm crazy when I say this. There is something in this song that has a, a feel that's nautical. Billy Joe pulled it off. And there's a song I'm going to say, and when I say it, you're going to like, especially if you know this song, you're like, come on, Jack, they're not even close to similar. And the artists are not similar at all. The artist I'm thinking of is John Denver. And the song I'm thinking of is Calypso, with all the yodeling and the high pitch and the goody-goody John Denver versus kind of a little bit gritty Billy Joel. It doesn't seem like the same, but I'm telling you there's something in these songs that make you feel ocean beyond the words that actually is similar in its formula. It's kind of cool. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thank you again for helping me bring to you the Survival Podcast for 10 years. And here's my commitment to you. As long as you'll keep listening and supporting what I do, I will bring it to you for at least another 10. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Left the
Oh 